Please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. What a great time, the, what a great job the worship team has, has done preparing our hearts to continue in worship this morning. Very appropriate theme as we talk about God's grace and its transformative effect in our lives. And so I hope you're encouraged this morning as we look at Luke chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 37 through 48 together. And if uh, in honor of God and his word, you would stand with me as we read it together. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37, and I'll be reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. Verse 37, on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And suddenly a spirit seizes him, and behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling, all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. That God encourages through his word this morning. You may be seated. Let's pray as we continue our time of worship. Father, we are sometimes hard of heart and unable to understand what you're saying. We, we pray that you'd soften our hearts this morning. We pray that your word would speak to our hearts through the work of your spirit, that you'd give us the ability to comprehend and understand all that you desire us to, and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. For those of you who are perhaps newer to our church, we've been going through the gospel of Luke, and Luke chapter 9 is a pivotal chapter in the gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is plainly declared to be the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus tells his disciples also plainly that he is going to suffer. He's going to be rejected by the religious leaders. He's going to be killed. And he's going to, on the third day, be raised. It's in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. And as he sets his face toward Jerusalem, the rest of his ministry in Luke is done under the cloud of the cross, with the cross in sight. All of his ministry moves toward the cross, and his death, his suffering, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven throughout the rest of the gospel of Luke. Also in Luke chapter 9, it's pivotal because it's in Luke chapter 9 that his disciples begin to play a more prominent role in announcing the coming kingdom of God. They begin to be involved in Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom ministry in a new way. They become more central figures in the narrative. And what we see this morning, and we're going to see over the next few weeks, 
is that these disciples, uh, to put it nicely, aren't quite ready for prime time. There's some issues that these disciples have uh, of not understanding fully Jesus. They don't understand completely his message. They don't understand his ministry, and they don't understand the kingdom of God. And the fact that they're the ones in line to proclaim the kingdom of God and be involved in this, this kingdom ministry whenever Jesus leaves is going to be a little bit troubling to us as we see these disciples and their lack of understanding over the next few weeks. Remember last week, as we were looking at the story of the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain with Jesus, and they behold Jesus' glory. And now, this week, they come down off the mountain and encounter the crowds. They've literally had a, a mountaintop experience, right? And now they come back down to earth. Sometimes you may have heard people use the expression mountaintop experience. A person will say, you know, this, this last weekend I was at a conference and well, it was a real mountaintop experience. Or this week I was studying God's Word, had some, uh, a morning where I was just able to spend some time in God's Word and it was a real mountaintop experience. Or this morning the worship was a real mountaintop experience. And what does that expression mountaintop experience mean? Well, it refers to this, this time that people have in which they experience the, the presence of God in a, a very tangible way, or they, they are aware of the presence of God in a way that's perhaps unusual. The disciples have had a mountaintop experience. Whenever I was a youth pastor, we used to take kids on retreats, right? And we'd, we'd get them away from school and away from kind of the distractions of life. And uh, the rule was always don't bring cell phones. And they always did. But we tried to, as much as we can, remove them from those, those outside influences. And we just spend some time in God's word, in times of worship, and, and having fun together in fellowship. And oftentimes, kids would, would have a mountaintop experience. It'd be a Saturday night, and they'd be really aware of God's presence in a, in a special way and, and make some commitments about their relationship with God. And then what happens? Sunday afternoon, we're back home. They come home, and mom and dad are upset at them for not doing their homework. And then Monday, the teacher's upset, and they're they're back with their friends, and and they begin to lose sight of those things that they had realized over the weekend. How do we maintain an awareness of the majesty and the glory and the realness of God? When we come down off those mountaintop experiences, how do we maintain an awareness of God's presence and an awareness of his character and a sense of his reality and his awesomeness apart from the mountaintop? I'm not going to answer that question yet. I want to keep it a little bit in suspense. What I want to do this morning, keep that question in your mind, how do I see the majesty of God displayed off the mountain. It's easy to see the majesty of God on top of the mountain. The question for us this morning is, how do I see the majesty of God displayed off the mountain? And what I want to do is I want to look at this story in Luke chapter 9 as the disciples come off this mountaintop experience. And then after we look at the chapter, we're going to look at three principles after we've kind of looked at this story, okay? So let's just go ahead and dive right in. Verse 37 presents a problem. 
It says, on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And so Peter, James, and John, remember, have been on the mountain with Jesus. They have seen Jesus' glory manifested in a very real way. Remember, his deity has always been there. Jesus has always been fully God and fully man. And yet his humanity has seemed more apparent than his deity. Well, for Peter, James, and John, Jesus' deity becomes manifested in a visible way. His face shines. His, his uh, clothing becomes wider than any launderer on earth can make it, even uh, wider than a, a Maytag, a Bob Dornan Maytag washing machine. I mean, it becomes white, all right? And he's, his glory is manifested in this, this physical way, and the disciples see that. And not only do they see his glory, what else do they see? They see two witnesses from heaven declaring that Jesus is is the Messiah, and that predicting and talking about his coming, suffering, and ministering in Jerusalem. They see that. And if that weren't enough, what else do they see? They see the Shekinah glory of God, the, the physical manifestation of God's glory, surround them in a cloud, and a voice come out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. That's what they experience. Talking about an awareness of God and his will and his purpose. Voice from heaven, listen to this person. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. That's their mountaintop experience. Then they come down. And there's the crowd. You may have had this experience where you go on a very peaceful vacation go and you get a good book and you just spend some time reading out on a beach and some great time in the evening playing with your kids and then the week is over and you come back to what reality right Monday morning rolls around and lo and behold your employer still wants you to do work uh, you come back to school and the teachers still assign homework it's just unreal uh, you come back and we call it coming back to reality is that what happens for the disciples here? They've, they've been off in kind of some dream world, and, and now they come back to reality in the crowds. No, I, I don't think that's the case. Here's what, I would, here's what I would call it. They have experienced reality on the mountaintop. And they come back to the crowds, and what happened on the mountaintops is no less real. God is still God. Jesus is still God. That is the voice from heaven that commands them to listen to him, that instruction still stands. But what happens, I believe, is this. Reality becomes harder to comprehend. As you come back down among the crowds, it's harder to remember what you witnessed and understood, understand what you witnessed on the mountaintop. Jesus and his disciples, Peter, James, and John, join the other disciples as they come back down off the mountain the next day, and the crowds come. And the crowds surround Jesus, and as they surround Jesus, there are all sorts of needs and desires that exist within that crowd. Perhaps over here, there's a, uh, some people that want to just hear Jesus teach. Maybe over here, there's some people who are, are downtrodden and discouraged and, and just depressed and, and need words of comfort. There's some people that are sick throughout the crowd. There are a crowd, vast crowd, representing various needs that that they have. And yet, among all these needs that exist among this crowd, Jesus' attention is drawn to a single person. Look at verse, the next verse, verse 28. 
It says, And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And so there's this crowd, a lot of people are demanding Jesus' attention, and yet this one individual, this one man from amongst this crowd draws Jesus' attention. He cries out above the rest of the crowd, and he asks Jesus, he says, I beg you, I entreat you, please look at my son. Mark tells us that he, he kneels down before Jesus. It's the cry of a desperate father who has a son whom he is unable to help. And what's the problem with the, with the son? Well, the man goes on, he says, uh, behold, behold, Jesus, a, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. This father comes and, and kneels down before Jesus, and it's the cry of a desperate father, and he says, look, this is the situation. There's this, this spirit that is affecting my son in a physical way. This spirit causes my, my, my son to cry out as, as he's crying out in pain, and, and it, it convulses him. It, it causes him to go into these seizures. It causes him to, to foam at the mouth. And Matthew uh, tells us the story as well. And Matthew, uh, the man, also adds the detail that this, this spirit will cause his child to, to throw himself into a fire or, or cause him to, to throw himself into water. This, this uh, young man is in great danger because of this spirit's effect on his life. Mark tells us that the man also mentions that the, the Spirit causes him to grind his teeth and, and to go rigid. You can imagine being a father and seeing your son go through this. All of us have experienced times where people we love are, are going through times of trial and we're completely helpless. Whenever Whitney and I became pregnant for the first time, had our first child here, uh, we went to go see the doctor and they, you know, they do these sonograms and it's, it's amazing how detailed the, the sonograms are, right? It's like, okay, it's, it's a boy or a girl, and uh, they're going to have uh, brown hair and become a doctor. And it's just very detailed what these sonograms can do. So there were, it's, it's too detailed sometimes, right? So they're, they're doing this sonogram of our first child, and, and uh, they, they start measuring things. And they say, let's see, this is the, uh, this is the leg. It's this long. Okay, that's kind of interesting you can do that. And then they said, now here are the kidneys, and they start measuring the kidneys and the heart, and it's very impressive. What they did is they were measuring our, our uh, little girl's kidneys is they said, you know, uh, one of the kidneys is 0.0% bigger than it should be compared to the other kidney, compared to this date in, her, in, her, uh, in, in the pregnancy. And so they said there's a 3% chance that such and such can happen, and da, da, da. And you're like, why are you telling me this, right? I don't, want to, I don't want to know that, and there's 3% chance that something, there's 3% chance that all sorts of things could happen, right? Well, as I think about that, and I was looking at the sonogram, I had this, this feeling, I wish, I wish that I was somehow able to, to hold my baby. I, I'm helpless right now to do anything. There, there's nothing I can do with this knowledge. There's nothing I can do to help my daughter. But, but boy, I can't wait until she's out of the womb and I can hold her in my arms and, and protect her and keep her safe. Ha! That lasted about 15 seconds after she was born, holding my baby, thinking, oh, it's so great that I can hold her. Now I can keep her safe. Wait a minute. <laughs> I can't keep her safe at all, can I? As you get older and older, you realize how completely unable you are to, to truly protect your children. And as you see your children or people you love suffer and go through situations that you're unable to control, there's a, a feeling of helplessness that overtakes you. 
this man in the crowd is distinguished from all the other problems in the crowd because of this, this overwhelming sense of despair that he has. It's the despair of a father who sees his child suffering, his only child, the son suffering, and he is completely powerless to prevent it. He sees his child in danger daily. This young man who's had this situation since his childhood, he's completely unable to prevent his, his son from endangering himself. He's overwhelmed. And he kneels before Jesus and he says, I, I can't do anything, please help me. Let's leave the man there on his knee before Jesus for, for just a moment. Some of you may be new to our church and, and you, you haven't heard us talk before about situations involving the demonic realm. And so let me just kind of give you a couple thoughts here as we, we think about the demonic realm and how the demonic realm interacts with us. Because this is a question that comes up frequently as you go through the Gospels and you see the demonic realm interacting with Jesus. A couple thoughts here. The first thought is this. Demons are real, okay? There is a demonic realm, there is a spiritual realm that demons are a part of. That's the first thought that I think is important for us to keep in mind as we see demons in Scripture. The second thought that I think is important for us to consider is this. The objective of the demonic realm is to diminish the glory of God. The main objective of the demonic realm is to diminish God's glory being manifested in the world. The third truth is this. The demonic realm works to diminish God's glory through deceit and destruction. A demon's task is to diminish God's glory being manifested in the world, and it does that through destroying and deceiving. As it destroys lives, its hope is that God's glory will not be manifest in destroyed lives. And the demon's hope is that it can deceive people in such a way that they fail to rightly live before God. That's the pattern of the demonic realm. Another truth to think about as we think about the demonic realm is that all of us, all of us are susceptible to demonic thoughts. One of the questions people have sometimes is, well, can believers be demon-possessed? And I, I would say no, that they can't. We've talked, we've talked before about this, but Ephesians uh, chapter 2, 2 Corinthians 6, um, Colossians 1.13 all describe our deliverance out of the demonic realm. So a believer has been indwelled by the Spirit and cannot be possessed by a demon, but all of us are susceptible to demonic thoughts, to, to following the, the world pattern, the world thought, or our cultural thought and thoughts and, and, and uh, its thinking that is influenced by the demonic realm. So, for example, you say, well, what's the, what's the primary demonic thought of our culture? I'd, I'd say it's materialism. There's a pervasive spirit of materialism that exists in our culture, and, and those of us who are Christians can be susceptible to that thinking. Another truth to think about as we consider the demonic realm is that demons are in complete and total fear of Jesus Christ. That comes through crystal clear as you look at Jesus' inter, uh, interactions with the demonic and spirit world. They live in complete, total, abject fear of Christ and his authority. The last thing that I think is important for us to think about as we think about the demonic realm is our responsibility. Sometimes people think, well, perhaps 
my responsibility is to go around like Jesus and, and find demons and, and cast them out of, of people and, and places. And, and I would argue something different. I would say, you know, Scripture gives us no guidelines for how to do that. If this were an important thing that believers were supposed to be going around doing, Scripture would have left us some sort of guidelines for what we're supposed to do. But throughout the epistles, no mention of interacting with the demonic realm and, and that way is is, is given. And so I would say that our responsibility as we interact with demonic thoughts and demonic activity, which is certainly amongst us, our responsibility is to engage it with the truth of God's word. And so as we encounter people who are influenced by demonic thinking, the thinking of our culture and, and worldview, our responsibility is to take the truth that God has given us and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and proclaim it to people. That's our responsibility. Let's go back to the story here. This man is on his knees before Jesus. He's cried out, Teacher, I, I, I beg you to help my child, my, my son, my only child. This is his, his condition. I'm completely powerless. And then what else does he say? Look at the next verse. It's very discouraging. He says, and I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. He says, I, I'm begging you, here's my situation, and by the way, I, I begged your disciples, and they also were unable to help me here. That's this man on his knees before Jesus, what he's begging him to do, and what does Jesus respond? Jesus looks at the man He has compassion on him. And Jesus says this in verse 41. He says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and, and bear with you? Bring your son here. Now when Jesus says, you faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? Is he, is he saying that to the man? Like, oh, another problem, fine. No, No, I believe he's having compassion on the man. I believe that Jesus is referring here to his disciples and perhaps others as well, an extension of the crowd, but for sure his disciples. Now, anytime Jesus refers to you as a generation, it's not a compliment, okay? If Jesus says, hey, he's not like, it's not a compliment to call you part of a generation. Here's some other places where Jesus uses, or Luke uses this expression of, of, of referring to a group of people as a generation. For example, Luke chapter 7, verse 31, as the Pharisees and the lawyers reject Jesus and John the Baptist, Jesus says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we play the flute for you and you did not dance. We sing a dirge and you did not weep. Luke eleven twenty nine 29, it says the crowds are increasing. And uh, as the crowds are increasing, Jesus says, this generation is an evil generation. It wants a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. It says the men of Nineveh are going to rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented of the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Luke 11, uh, verses 49 through 51, uh, just a couple excerpts from that. Jesus says, uh, that prophets and apostles have been sent, and uh, because all the prophets and apostles have been sent to this generation, and they had all this revelation, this generation is going to be 
guilty of the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world. It will be required of this generation. Acts 2.40, Peter says this, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. When Jesus calls you part of a generation in the Gospel of Luke, what he's saying is this. You're part of a group that is unbelieving and perverted and twisted in its understanding of God. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees thought they understood God pretty well. And Jesus says, no, you're part of an evil, wicked generation that demands signs, that rejected, rejects God's revelation and fails to understand God's power and glory and, and might in me. As Jesus tells his disciples, how long am I going to put up with this faithless, unbelieving, and perverted generation? He's saying, you're part of a system that doesn't rightly understand God and his power and his revelation. You don't get it. He says in frustration, how long am I going to be forced to put up with you? How long am I going to have to interact with this lack of belief and faith and understanding of God, his might, his power? Tells the guy to bring his son here. So the man gets his son, and and as the son is, is coming towards Jesus, there is a display once again of the demon's power. What does the text tell us? It says that he begins to, the th- demon, verse 42, threw him into con- to the ground and convulsed him. So as the, the, the boy, is, the young man is, is coming, he, he, he begins to experience the, these seizures again. If any of you have ever experienced a, a seizure or, or had a loved one who's experienced a seizure, you know that, that lack of control and that, that helplessness you, you feel as you have that seizure or, or later as you think about it or if you can't remember it or, or seeing someone go into that, that, uh, that, the, the, those seizures, it's a feeling of, of great helplessness and, and complete inability to control the situation. The demon has, the spirit has such a physical control over the life of this young man that he is completely unable to control his own body. It would seem that the demon's power over this this person is complete. And yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus looks at the situation and it says that he rebuked the demon. Mark tells us that he says, you deaf and dumb spirit, be gone and never come back. Luke tells us, as Jesus does that, he heals him. The unclean spirit leaves, and Jesus gave his, the son back to his father. Verse 43, and all were astonished at what? And all were astonished at how much this father loved his little boy not what the text says. Look at it. All were astonished at how, how uh, neat this little boy's change was. No, it says all were astonished, catch this, all were astonished at the majesty of God. He said, what do you mean astonished at the majesty of God? Catch this, they weren't on the mountain with Peter, James, and John at this moment. Jesus wasn't being displayed in his his deity. They weren't seeing a visible manifestation of his deity on his face and in his clothing like the disciples had just seen the day before. They're looking at a boy who had been shattered and is now transformed. 
And as they look at that, as they look at this transformed life, what do they see? They see the majesty of God. And as they're all marveling at everything Jesus was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. They don't understand as he talks about this suffering again. Catch the parallel. Yesterday, Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' glory is revealed in a visible, visible form. And with that manifestation of his glory comes the discussion of his suffering. They're linked together. Now, next day, it's off the mountain. They see the majesty of God. And as the majesty of God is revealed, Jesus reminds his disciples suffering. They're linked together. What I think Luke is trying to show us is this. God's majesty, and here's what I believe is a central point of the text for us this morning. God's majesty, God's glory is not only revealed on the mountaintop. God's glory is also revealed in the transformed lives of those who have been shattered and restored. God's glory is not only revealed on the mountaintop in this this visible manifestation of his glory in the person of Jesus Christ. God's glory is also revealed in the transformed lives of people who have been shattered and then restored. It's an amazing truth. God's glory can be manifested in our lives as those of us who have been shattered and broken are transformed by the person of Jesus Christ. How are people going to see God's glory in his church? How, are God, how, how is a person going to come in this room and, and see God's glory? Jesus isn't going to be up on the stage like he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. We're not going to have like a guest speaker Moses and another guest speaker Elijah that, that, that say, look, here's Jesus. Jesus is going to be manifested to people who come into this room by our transformed lives. Let me give you a couple principles to go with this. The first principle that I want us to think about is this, as we think about transformed lives. Principle number one, spiritual problems will manifest themselves in your life in real and tangible ways. Expect them. Spiritual problems are going to manifest themselves in your life in in real, physical, tangible ways. Expect them. Let me share with you a couple of temptations, four temptations that I think we have as we think about this principle. One temptation is to see no connection between physical and spiritual problems. So, for example, I have this this, this physical problem, and it's a physical problem, therefore I, I need to do physical things to, to solve this physical problem and not understand that there are spiritual components to every physical problem we face. And also what happens sometimes is spiritual problems in our lives manifest themselves in physical ways. There are physical ways that we're affected as we deal with spiritual struggles. And our temptation is to see these realms as completely separate. Here, this father encounters 
a spiritual problem that manifests itself in physical ways. When I was a student at a seminary, I've attended, I've attended several seminaries. One of the seminaries I've attended, uh, I keep getting kicked out for good behavior. Um, one of the seminaries I attended, I was, I was uh, writing a paper on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 talks about how all Scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed by God. And it's, it's profitable for what? For teaching, for correction, for, for training, for, for reproof, for, for training in righteousness, reproof, training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be fully equipped, adequate for every good work. And so what I dealt with in my paper was, was what does it mean that, that Scripture, based on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, what does it mean that Scripture is sufficient? What does it mean that Scripture has the ability to, to help us spiritually no matter what situation we're facing? Um, I'm being modest here. It was a brilliant paper. Um, my professor was not impressed, though. My professor wrote back on the paper. He said, you know, uh, I, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but I just, I simply don't agree. And then he said this, and it was kind of, I'll show you the paper sometime if you'd like to see. It's kind of funny. I mean, it's, it's like a, uh, just this, this mass of red ink all throughout the paper. And uh, so he was just trying to, he was, he was uh, arguing with a lot of the, the, the points that I was making. And one of the points that he had a problem with was the idea that Scripture is sufficient to, to help us with any spiritual problem we have. And he said, if I, he said, sometimes problems are physical, and we need to deal with the physical before we can deal with the spiritual. He said, for example, let's say that I, I have a, a broken leg. It's hard for me to be spiritual with a broken leg. To which I say, yeah. It's hard, but it's necessary, right? It's necessary. God's glory is manifest in hard situations. When a person is able to be spiritual with a broken leg, that says something about the majesty and the glory of God. And, and yes, I'm, I'm advocating fixing a broken leg <laughs> physically. But understand, there's a spiritual component to physical problems. And spiritual problems manifest themselves in physical ways. And our first temptation is to see the two as distinct and completely separate. Another temptation is to become overwhelmed by our problems. As we think about the physical problems we, we have in our lives, the spiritual problems, another temptation here is to become overwhelmed by them. You can imagine being this father here and, and seeing your, your, your child in, in such danger just to simply become overwhelmed. Another temptation is to believe that there are a series of steps that you can follow in any problem on your own, and it will lead to its conclusion, to, to, its, to, to its solution. So we say, all right, um, I have this, this spiritual problem. All I need to do is A, B, C on my own, and, and then I, I can deal with it. I have this problem with my schedule. I just need to, to be a better time manager and, and do these three things on my own, and, and then it'll, it'll be solved. We believe that Christianity is, is formulaic. The disciples suffered this, I believe. Remember at the beginning of the chapter, at the beginning of chapter 9, they had been given by God this charge to engage in kingdom ministry, and they're able to deal with these, these demons. They have power of the demonic realm. Now, that they, the same power they had earlier, they don't have, and they're confused by this. There's a temptation that we have as well to have a man-made approach to dealing with spiritual problems. 
And the last temptation that I think we see here as we think about how spiritual problems manifest themselves in, in, in your life in physical, tangible ways is to feel as though, though crying out to God in pain sometimes is wrong. Sometimes we have this, this perception that in our, our anguish, it's, it's wrong to cry out to God and, and express our, our despair. But I believe what the man does here as he kneels before God is exactly right. Help me. Mark tells us that the man uh, told Jesus, uh, Jesus said, all things are possible if you, if you believe. And the man says, I, I believe, help my unbelief. we think about the spiritual problems in our lives, we need to be expectant, recognizing that our physical problems have a spiritual component, and our spiritual problems often are going to manifest themselves in physical ways. We should not be surprised. We should not be surprised when we're overtaken in real physical, tangible ways with spiritual problems. It shouldn't surprise us. Be prepared. The second principle is this that I think helps us. Unbelief manifests itself in a perverted understanding of God's ability and power. Believe. Unbelief manifests itself in a perverted understanding of God's ability and power. Think about what the disciples did here. The disciples tried to deal with this demon. You say, well, I guess they just didn't have enough belief. Well, they had quite a bit in terms of quantity. They believed a lot. What did they believe in, though? What they were believing in was their own ability to deal with this situation. They remembered their ministry at the beginning of, the, of Luke chapter 9, what they were able to do. And so they had a great deal of confidence in their own ability to tackle this. Their failure was a failure of believing in God and understanding his ability and his power to how he works. It's a little bit nebulous here, but as we look at the three gospel accounts together describing this, what perhaps should have happened is the disciples should have recognized the power to deal with this comes from God and come to Jesus and said, look, what, what do we do here? As we believe, in our belief, we understand that, that this is God's, God's ministry, his kingdom plan, what's his plan in this life, and, and how do we participate in it? Instead, they arrogantly felt like the power was coming from within and, and tried to deal with it on their own. This is a very important principle, I think, for us as we, as we think about manifesting God in our lives, sometimes we have a perverted understanding of God's ability and God's power. And we believe that God is, is kind of like a, a puppet in some ways. And we have this plan for our lives, and we can kind of manipulate God in a way, and we can say, well, God's going to do what I want to do, and I'm just going to have enough faith, and God's going to do the things that I want him to do. So, for example, we say, uh, I want to be healed I have this illness, and I want to be healed. Therefore, I just need to have enough faith. And if I have enough faith, God's going to act in the way that I desire him to act, and God has to heal me. Because he's done that in the past, because he's healed people in the past, that's his plan for my life as well. I just must have enough faith. And if I'm not healed, it's a lack of faith. Or we say this, uh, I want this, this promotion in my, my job, I, I want to, to excel in my job, and therefore I'm going to have faith. And as I have faith, God's going to do what I desire him to do in my life, and, and that is a perverted and twisted understanding of God's ability and power. God's power 
exists for what purpose? God's glory. God's power exists so that God's glory will be manifested. And our faith is not in an outcome. Our faith is in a person. Our faith is directed to God. And as our faith is in God, we trust him in the ways that he manifests himself in our lives. And if that's to heal us, wonderful. More glory to him. If it's to cause us to to shine in the midst of persecution, wonderful. More glory to him. But so often, when we talk about faith and belief, we're simply talking about our own perverted understanding of God's will and his power. Don't pervert God's ability. Don't pervert God's power. Believe, believe in God, not in what you want God to do. Third principle is this. Third principle is this. God's majesty, God's majesty is displayed in the transformed faces of the shattered. Be transformed. God's majesty is displayed in the transformed faces of the shattered. Be transformed. Look again at the text. This unclean spirit is is rebuked by Jesus. and, And how do people respond? They're astonished at the majesty of God. This glory off the mountain is seen in transformed lives. Suffering is confusing for the disciples. They understand healing. As they look at this transformed life in this boy, they recognize that there's something powerful about Jesus, and God receives glory. 1700s, there's a man named George Whitfield, and he ministered in, in England and in uh, the, the colonies in America. When he was in Brit- he, George Whitfield was actually part of the, the Great Awakening. When he was in England, he was in Bristol, England one time preaching, and there's a man named Thorpe. And Thorpe was a, a godless man. In fact, he enjoyed mocking preachers. He would go and listen to them preach, get manuscripts of their sermons, and then he and his friends would have what they called an infidel club, infidel church at a pub. So Thorpe went and listened to George Whitfield preach, grabbed a copy of his manuscript, and, and decided to imitate his mannerisms. Whitfield was severely cross-eyed. So uh, Thorpe stood up in the middle of the pub, grabbed one of George Whitfield's manuscripts, crossed his eyes, and began to mock Whitfield and read his sermon. As he read his sermon, he came to these words of Jesus, unless you likewise repent, you too shall perish. When he read those words, Thorpe converted. <laughs> he began to shake recognized the truth of the words that he was mocking, repented, and placed his faith in Christ. He was a powerful testimony to the transformed, transforming work of Jesus Christ. Benjamin Franklin, when he went to hear, hear Whitfield in the colonies in Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin, who was no believer, in fact, in his autobiography, Franklin talks about how Whitfield tried to convert him and was unable to do so, and Uh, Franklin admired Whitfield, and Franklin also wrote in his autobiography of how he admired the effects of Whitfield's preaching. Franklin said this, it was wonderful to see the changes soon made in in the manners of our inhabitants in Philadelphia. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious, 
so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. I'm going to close by looking again at 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we looked at it last week. It's a passage we would do well to consider again this morning. How are God's people going to display God's majesty? God's majesty is displayed the lives of the transformed. As you and I see lives